This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Israel, Caleb F., Emmeline, Stephen, and Sam M. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Israel, who asks, Who rolled away the stone? When Jesus was buried, they closed the entrance to the tomb by rolling a heavy stone in front of the opening. Remember, this tomb was carved into the rock, so it was an above-ground burial, not six feet under, the way we do it now. After the resurrection, people visiting the tomb found the stone rolled back, and Jesus was no longer inside. He had risen from the grave because the grave could not hold him. Now, of all the gospel accounts, only Matthew explains in detail how the stone came to be rolled away. He writes, An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, this angel wasn't in disguise either. His appearance was like lightning, Matthew says, and his clothes were white as snow. When he came down, there was a great earthquake, and the guards around the tomb trembled with fear. They were like dead men, Matthew says. So Israel, an angel of the Lord, rolled away the stone. And it was quite a thing to witness from the sound of it. And now Caleb F. asks, Was Paul born a Roman citizen, or did he pay to become one? Well, we know that the Apostle Paul was a Roman citizen, because he says so in Acts chapter 16. Then, later in Acts 22, a Roman tribune explains that he purchased his own citizenship at great expense. But Paul reveals that he himself was born a citizen. He didn't have to pay Caleb because that citizenship was his birthright. Now, let me clarify something about this Roman citizenship, because it didn't work the way American citizenship does. If you're born in the United States, you're a citizen of the United States. But you could be born in the Roman Empire and not be a Roman citizen. In fact, most people born in the empire wouldn't have been citizens. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy, but you might think of Roman citizenship as a kind of rank, a social standing. Citizens possessed rights and privileges that not everybody enjoyed, and you could achieve that rank of citizenship in a variety of ways. You could have it by birth, you could be awarded it as a prize or for your service, you could buy it. Now, Paul wasn't born in the city of Rome, he was born in Tarsus, which was the capital of the Roman province of Cilicia. He doesn't refer to himself as a Roman and doesn't seem to have thought of himself as a Roman. So Roman citizenship wasn't the same thing as Roman identity. But Paul did have some privileges due to his status as a citizen, mainly to do with how the government could treat him. 
citizens could not be abused by authorities the way non-citizens could. They weren't supposed to be flogged, for example, which causes some consternation after Paul is treated so badly, despite being a Roman citizen. And citizens had the right to appeal their cases to Caesar, which ultimately is what Paul did. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Emmeline. So let's give her a round of applause. Here's Emmeline's question. She asks, what is the most unpopular of Jesus's teachings right now and why? The funny thing about Jesus's reputation in the world is that Jesus is not unpopular. In fact, Jesus is pretty popular and always seems to be generation to generation. Even people who hate Christianity and despise the church will sometimes have positive things to say about Jesus himself. Now, why is that? Some people would say it's because they don't have a problem with the teachings of Jesus, just with the way those teachings have been twisted and abused by his followers. But I think there's a different explanation. In a word, the explanation is idolatry. It's not Jesus who is popular. It's the idol we make for ourselves and call it Jesus. In other words, we remake Jesus generation after generation in our own image. We invent a Jesus who believes basically whatever we believe. He loves what we love. He approves of what we approve of. He hates what we hate and condemns what we condemn. What's not to like? The only way to shatter this idol, this false Jesus, is to meet the real Jesus in Scripture. When you read the Bible, you are confronted by what Jesus actually teaches and what he actually calls us to think, to live, and to say. That Jesus, the real Jesus, isn't going to win any popularity contests because no matter what we believe, no matter what side we're on in our political and cultural fights, the real Jesus challenges us. We can't explain him away. We can't tame him. We can't make his words seem comfortable and affirming. Now, in that sense, I think everything Jesus teaches is unpopular to us in our sinful state. If there's anything that isn't unpopular, it's probably because we've misinterpreted what Jesus actually means. Only the Holy Spirit working in us really opens our eyes to the goodness and love of what Jesus teaches. Without that grace, we don't want to hear it. But your question, Emmeline, is a good one because you can learn a lot about a particular place or point in time by asking what part of Jesus' teaching caused the most offense. For example, in the New Testament, the things that make people apoplectic with rage are when Jesus equates himself with the Father, asserting his own divine sonship, or when he does things that only God is supposed to be able to do, like forgive people's sins. There were a lot of things that Jesus said that people in the New Testament actually agreed with because they'd been raised on the Old Testament, and Jesus taught what the Law and Prophets had also taught. But when he went farther, when he admitted to being the Anointed One, the Messiah, or revealed his own divinity, that was too much. That seemed to threaten the fabric of their culture. 
the things about Jesus that our culture reacts strongly against are different. They're more basic. We don't have the same shared history, or to put it another way, the history has flipped things around. Because Christianity shaped the modern world, the divinity of Christ and his fulfillment of the Old Testament promises is kind of taken for granted. The inclusion of Gentiles in the covenant, which was a huge problem in Paul's day, is also taken for granted by people now. I'm not saying that people believe in all of this. It's just that they're familiar with the ideas. It's not shocking to hear these things. But there are some more basic things that have become shocking now that society in general has moved on from its Christian influences. One of them is the basic assumption in Jesus' teaching, which is expressed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.20, that you are not your own. The idea that we don't belong to ourselves, but belong to God. That we are what the Father says we are. That we exist to fulfill His purpose for us, not whatever purpose we come up with for ourselves. Today, it's a fundamental assumption of American society that we all have the right to invent ourselves according to our own judgment. That no one can tell you who you are. That you are self-determining. Every word of Jesus pushes back against that false conception of what it means to be human. You don't get the final say when it comes to interpreting reality. God does. You don't get the final say when it comes to interpreting yourself. God does. That is probably the most unpopular underlying assumption in the teaching of Jesus to people right now. The most unpopular out-in-the-open teaching, though, has got to be what Jesus says in John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I'm referring here to the whole statement, not just the last half. Yes, it is deeply offensive to people now to say that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Even people who don't believe there is a Heavenly Father think it's offensive to insist there's only one way to Him. Now, we live, by virtue of necessity, in a pluralist society, where people who believe a lot of different things have to get along together. But the tendency is to make a virtue of necessity. In other words, to say that if we can't judge which truth claims are right or wrong, then it's best to assume they're all wrong, and to be skeptical about whether there's any truth at all. Jesus claims to be the only way to God? Well, that doesn't fit. That's unacceptable. But remember, I said it's not just the last half of the teaching, but the whole thing. Before he says no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus explains why that is. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's as if he's saying his way is the only way, his truth the only truth and that there is no life apart from him. And if you read the whole of John's Gospel, you'll know that's exactly what he means. There is no life apart from him. That is an unpopular teaching, not only in our time, but in all time. Not only are we who and what Jesus says we are, but we have no hope of life outside of him. The good news is he's here to give us that life by giving us himself. That is foolishness to some, and a roadblock to others, but to those who are being called, that is the power and wisdom of God. 
I hope that no one listening will ever decide whether you agree with Jesus or not based on whether what he's saying is popular or acceptable in our culture. There are no crowns in heaven for just going with the flow and defaulting to majority opinion. Don't screen your faith according to popular opinion. Just study the scriptures and cling to whatever you find there. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Stephen, who asks, what is your least favorite chore? And the funny thing is, Stephen, I don't have very many chores, and most of the chores I have, I have because I like them. Even so, I wouldn't say that any chore is exactly a favorite. Even something you love when it becomes a chore can be quite a burden. For example, it's my job to make coffee every morning, and I love coffee, and I love having it in the morning, and I love making it correctly, too. So you would think that this is one of my favorite chores. It's certainly an easy chore. I have a coffee machine that makes coffee whenever you tell it to. All I have to do is fill it with water, grind the beans, and set the timer. I do this every night, and every morning the coffee starts brewing before I'm even awake. But even so, every night, I dread the tiny amount of work that I have to do. I feel miserable as I draw water from the tap and fill the machine. I count out the scoops like it will take me forever, then grind the beans with so much impatience, even though all I have to do is stand there and wait. You'd think my whole night was being eaten up by all of this, but it only takes about 30 seconds or so. The point is, chores are never fun, even when they are fun. But they're still important. I've learned that whether I want to do them or not, I do want what they accomplish. And that means chores are good. And I should do them for God's glory. And so should you. And now finally, Sam M. wants to know, how can a person have a log in his eye? Well, Sam, I'm not a doctor, and I don't play one on TV. But I do see the problem here. A log is basically a tree branch, and if you stick a tree branch in someone's eye, that won't be good. I haven't actually set up a scientific test and explored this problem, but just using my imagination, whenever I picture taking a log and sticking it in my eye, it's always very painful. Take my word for it, I don't recommend trying this at home. If this is true, then what could Jesus possibly have meant when he said that you shouldn't criticize the speck in someone else's eye when there's a log in yours? Well, he didn't mean it literally. Jesus was speaking symbolically, metaphorically. It's a figure of speech. People do get specks in their eyes, and that can be a real annoyance. Have you ever had something stuck in your eye and it itched so bad or hurt so much that you could picture how big and horrible it was in your mind even though you couldn't see it? I've had Lori take something out of my eye and say, look, I got it, here it is. And she'll hold up her fingertip and show me a tiny little speck, this insignificant piece of fluff. And I'll say, there's no way that that little thing is what caused so much pain. Well, Jesus is using this very common experience to make a point. We are hypocrites because we criticize other people for minor faults, little sins and shortcomings that are like a piece of fluff in the overall scheme. Yet we ourselves do things so bad that in comparison they would be the size of logs. The log in your eye isn't literal, but honestly it would be better for you if it were. Because the big sins that blind us to our true state are much worse than anything physical that we could suffer. 
That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions. Thank you.